Good morning, church family. I am Melinda's husband, <laughs> but, I, but I also answer to Chris. I'm also a very, very proud father. I'm a member of the Pager Club. <clears throat> so please stay standing for the reading of God's Word. Our scripture reading today is selected from 2 Corinthians 5, 10 through chapter 6, verse 2. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, uh, Melinda's husband, <laughs> Chris. Oh, hello, hearty ones. In Chicago, it took two feet of snow to keep people out of church. But you're here, and I'm so glad. So I want to show you just a verse and a half from what the Apostle Paul said that Chris read to us. I want you to see it. I don't want you to miss this. It's found in verses 14 and 15. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us. Now, when I read that, I, I thought, what makes some people do things that other people, when they see it, say, that guy's out of his mind? Well, maybe he is. Maybe he is crazy. Or maybe that person has come to know something that we don't yet know or experience something that has absolutely changed his life. And in light of those things, what might seem to most people in the world like it's crazy isn't really crazy at all. Do you think that's possible? Well, this weekend, we're going to be looking at how the Apostle Paul, when people even people in church looked at how he was living his life and said, this man is out of his mind. Now, what made them say this? Well, it's the way he was living. 
Got to remember, the Apostle Paul was probably one of the best educated people in his society, probably came from a quite wealthy home. He was a young man, so that if they gave out most likely to succeed in the future, he would almost certainly have won it. And then something happened in his life that pulled him away from all of that, and he had a whole different life where he would just travel out in the city after city and, and just tell people about Jesus and for doing it. I mean, his whole life had changed. Everywhere he went, he, he was rejected, he was beaten, he kept being thrown into prison. And, and people say, this man is out of his mind. And basically what he said to them is this, if you experience what I have experienced, then you will know that I am not out of my mind. In fact, if you experience it, you'll probably adopt some of the way of life that I have myself, which brings us to 2 Corinthians 5. It is that text, and I showed it to you. When some people in that church, I mean, he had brought them the gospel, had been abused for doing so. Some people in that church really felt he had lost his mind. And one of the reasons why they called him crazy is that they felt like he was just way too confrontational, way too blunt. If you read through the uh, lines of, of 2 Corinthians, we, you can almost hear their voices. Oh, that Paul, he's too pushy. He's always pushing his faith on Jesus to other people, telling them they have to as well. He's kind of like a guy going down to uh, old paths down here, and kind of carrying a poster saying, turn or burn. You can just hear them say it. He turns people off. Listen, we're trying to reach some of the influential, the sophisticated people in this city. They'll never come if they meet this Paul. I'm pretty sure that they used a word for him that you find in verse 11. It's a word that translated persuade. Do you see that? He persuades people. That, that's way too weak a translation, persuade. In, in their language, it really meant he, he comes on strong. He's, he might even try to bully people, twist their arm, tries to browbeat them into doing it. it. It's the very word that's used in Acts chapter 18. When Paul first went into the city of Corinth, where this church was founded, and they took him, and people got upset by him, they took him out into the public place to try him, and what they confronted him with, what they said about him is this, he's persuading people out there. He's coming on too strong, he's getting on people's nerves, and they abused him for it. And in the passage that Chris read for us just a few moments ago, essentially, Paul says this, well, maybe that's all true. Maybe I, I have this sense of urgency and I come on really strong as I seek to tell people about Jesus, but let me tell you why I do what I do. And he says, number one, it's because of this, what I've come to know, what I've come to know about God. Number two, it's because of what I've experienced with Jesus. And number three, having experienced that, it's what he's told me to do. This is why I do what I do. So let's just think about that for a moment. This is the passage that has fueled the global mission efforts, why people have been willing to leave home to carry the gospel in other places. So we need to listen to what it has to say. Motivation number one, why he was willing to go out and, and tell people about Jesus. It's what we know. Look again at verses 10 and 11. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in this body, whether good or bad. Since we know that, 
Since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade people. When you think about what Paul is really saying here is once you follow Jesus, what you begin to learn from the scriptures is that what we do with our lives matters. Uh, how we steward each day and what we have, it, it really matters before God. And in fact, we are going to stand before God someday to give account of how we've lived our lives. I want you to notice here how comprehensive this statement is that he makes. He said, we know that all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, just throughout the history of the church, many people have debated about who's in that all. Some people say, well, maybe this is just all Christians. We, Christians, will have to stand. And others will say, no, it's talking about unbelievers. They'll have to. And others will say, no, all means everybody is going to have to stand before Christ. And I'm in that camp that believes that all means all. Uh, partially because he's certainly talking to Christians here. But at the very end of this, you see what he's talking about here, that all people are going to have to stand before Christ, and they're going to have to be right with God when they do. So I want you to notice how comprehensive that is. And I want you to also notice this, the individual nature of standing before the judgment seat of Christ. Each one will receive what is due him, verse 10. So I'll tell you, when we someday, when time is over and we stand before Christ, we're not going to stand there in a group. It's not going to be all the Lake Avenue church people. It's not going to be uh, all, just all the Americans will stand in one group and then the other groups come. No, no. We're going to stand each one before Christ to give account. To get a feel of how, how carefully Paul wants them to see this is that phrase that he uses, the judgment seat. Verse 10, do you see it? That had a special meaning for the people in Corinth. I've been to Corinth a number of times. In fact, I have a picture of the, the ruins of Corinth here. And as you look at that, you see that one seat there in the middle. Uh, what, what, apparently what they did at Corinth was that they would have public trials. And, and the, the people who were the judges and, and any attorneys, they would sort of be on the outside. But the one who sat on that seat was the one who had to answer the questions. I preached next to that seat. I just got to tell you something here. You can only sit on there one at a time. There's only room for one at a time unless you are awfully small. And uh, Paul had been there when he was accused of all sorts of things. And what he's saying is this, listen, we're going to stand before God personally and individually. So there's going to be a time where time on this realm will come to an end. And if you know the rest of the New Testament, that Jesus will come to complete what he has done. And what Paul is saying is that all people, because all people are important and made in God's image, all people will stand before God and give account for how we have lived our lives. Each one will have to give account. And the point he's making in this part of the text is this, that when we've come to know Jesus, we know this. We know that people don't have forever to turn to God. That Christ could come at any time. It could be tomorrow. Uh, what if somehow you got special knowledge into the fact that Jesus was going to come tomorrow? What if, do you remember that television show called First Edition where a guy would get a newspaper and it would tell him what was going to happen the next day? What if you got one of those that you knew that the next day the clocks would stop and time would come to an end and everybody would have to gather before the Lord? What would you do if you knew that? 
Would there be somebody you would visit? Would you right now be sending out a text? I've got something I've got to tell you about. I've got to tell you today. Would even there be a relationship that you would want to make sure you want to repair? The thing I want you to see is this. This matter that Paul is talking about, about why he went out to tell other people about Jesus, this isn't just an optional extra for a follower of Jesus. It isn't a Christian hobby that some do and and some don't. Because what we are into is a rescue operation from God. You and I have been rescued because somebody had the courage to tell us about Jesus. It's, It's like Dunkirk. In, the, in World War II, even more than that. Did you see the movie that came out last year where you have the, the British soldiers and those who were there in the occupation in France and the Nazis were coming after them? How are they going to be rescued? It seemed impossible. And all of these boats, whatever boats they could come, telling people when they got there, get in now. Get in now. And that's why Paul said, that's why I try to persuade people because I know that they have to stand before God. And on their own, people aren't ready to meet him. I'll tell you, is that a sobering thought for you? Does knowing that kind of make you want to go and tell some people about who Jesus is and about the hope that they have to be right with God if they only know him? Well, that's the first motivation. Paul says, what I'm doing is not crazy. It just flows out of what I know. Now, now the second motivation just flows straight from it, and it's this really beautiful but also almost shocking thing that one before whom we stand, he's now going to tell us, loves us with an everlasting love. And this Jesus, whose judgment seat that is, loves you and me so much he died for us. So that's the second motivation, what we've experienced. Runs between verses 12 to 17 and in the midst of it. It's Christ's love that compels us. For we are convinced of something, that one died for all. So, if all have to stand before Christ, there is hope for all. If you're in the first all, that you have to stand before Christ, are you in the second all, that he died for you? You most certainly are. Now, to get the point that he makes here, you've got to understand that for most of his life, the Apostle Paul had lived for himself. I mean, he had had that self-directed life that I often talk to you about. He confesses to that in verse 15. And he thought he'd done it pretty well. So much so that he would have been one of those people who would have resisted anybody saying, somebody has to die for you or you have no hope. In fact, he would have said, nobody has to do anything for me. Read read Philippians chapter 3, in which he says, everything anybody else wants, I've already done it. He's kind of like maybe, maybe your boss at work or maybe if you have a really successful neighbor next to it. That's who Paul was, but you've got to see that even though he thought he was really living this life, well, look at where that self-directed life had taken him. It had taken him to the point that he was doing what most people think is un- unimaginable. He was a leader in the movement to try to wipe out Christians. Almost couldn't even see how wrong that certainly is, even if he didn't like Christians. And it was one day when he was on the road to Damascus to kill people who followed Jesus that he met. Anybody want to just kind of wake up and tell me? We're we're at Lake Avenue Church here. He was on the way to kill people who followed Jesus and he met. 
He met Jesus. Oh, this is a smart group at the 11 o'clock service. Um, and I'll tell you, when he met him, well, the thing that was the most shocking was that knowing everything about Paul and even what he was doing, uh, Paul owning up now, finally, to what he was capable of and what was inside of his heart, turns his life over to Jesus. And though for the rest of his life he would call himself the chief of sinners, he experienced the cleansing, forgiveness, and hope that Jesus and Jesus alone can give. It was the most life-transforming thing in his life was that in meeting Jesus, he met somebody who knew everything about him and loved him still. Hallelujah. He learned that Jesus knew he had rejected him but still was willing to die for him. And I'll tell you, the impact of any of us experiencing that should be, as Paul writes about in verses 14 and 15, when I, when I experienced that, I could no longer live for myself. Do you see that? That's the operative phrase. We who have experienced the love of Jesus, we can't live for ourselves, but the second side, but for him who died and was raised again. See, because what Paul is saying is, when you've actually met the one who had to die for you to have any hope, you and I cannot put ourselves at the center of our universes anymore. Instead, we're going to follow him. Follow him. Stephen Curtis Chapman wrote a song about this, that even as I was thinking about this sermon, I started singing it to myself. He said, we are seized by the power of a great affection. Seized, compelled, moved forward by the power of a great affection for us that we've met in Jesus. Now, with that in mind, you've just got to note this. This experience of the love of God that he dies for you was not just for the great apostle, nor was it only for missionaries or preachers. It is for all. So I'm going to tell you what I try to tell you every Sunday if you come. Regardless of what is in your past, even your recent past, regardless of your age, your youth, or whether you're on the other side of that, regardless of race or nationality or political affiliation, if you are human, Jesus died for you. And I never want you to forget that. And I hope you see this, Paul says, knowing that and experience that, I've just got to go out and tell others and persuade them. The love of Jesus compels me in this matter. So you can see how that flows into what he says in these great verses. Having experienced that Jesus died for me, I can no longer look at myself in the way I used to. I can't run my own life. Knowing that he died for me means I have to live for him, but knowing that he had to die for all, I've got to see other people in a different way too. Verse 16, though I once used, looked at Jesus the way everybody else looks at him, a dangerous rabbi, a Messiah wannabe, <laughs> however he had looked, I now know he's the savior of my soul and the savior of the world. And when I know that and know that he's died for all, I've got to look at all other human beings in a different way because I know that if anyone is in Christ, that person, no matter who they are, becomes a new creation becomes a new creation. Do you have eyes to see people that way? I'll tell you this. One of the um, surest ways to know that you've really experienced the love of Jesus in your life is that you begin to see people differently. You just can't put people down. You can't hate them anymore. Even if, even if they're irritating you at work, 
got to see them differently. Chris and I were watching a documentary this past week. It was about Mr. Rogers. Anybody remember Mr. Rogers? The one for whom everybody was a neighbor. One of the questions they asked him in this documentary, if you've seen it, uh, was, uh, do you ever get mad at anybody? Do you ever get angry? He says, yes, there are some people that always make me angry when they demean other people when they demean other people, calling them names and putting them down, that always makes me angry. And I think we have to say, there's something about what Paul was saying here too that was in Mr. Rogers' words, that whenever we find that somebody for whom Jesus died, who can become a new creation in Christ is being demeaned, just inconsistent with anybody who's met Jesus and experienced his mercy. What he's really saying is when, when you and I have experienced the mercy of God, experienced the love of God, we can no longer look at anybody from those pessimistic and negative ways that the world so often do. We see them as they can be if only they would experience the love of Jesus. Now, we're going to be having communion in just a few moments. We're going to remember with great gratitude and awe that Jesus died for me and you. What I want us to do this week in communion is to add on that phrase that Paul did, not only for me, but for all. But for all. This is why Paul tried to persuade people, because he'd experienced the love of Jesus, should not the love of Christ. So transform our perspective on the people around us so that we won't see people simply the way they are, but we always see them the way that our Father does. May God save us from any kind of ministry at Lake Avenue Church that isn't compelled by the love of Christ, that's only compelled by trying to get more people to show up at church even when it's raining outside. The love of Christ we've experienced is something that's got to flow through us into this world. And that's Paul's second great motivation. It's not only what he knew, but what he'd experienced. He'd experienced the love of Jesus, and that changed everything. And that's enough in and of itself, isn't it? But there is a third and final motivation, too. That one who loved him had told him what he wanted Paul to do. What we've been told to do. It runs from chapter 5, verse 18 to chapter 6, verse 2. God gave us the ministry of reconciliation and he gave us the message of reconciliation. I, I hope you'll go and read those verses again. You heard Kristen reading them to us. These are some of the great verses in the entire Bible. Every phrase is so meaningful. We, we probably should spend weeks on this section, but we're just going to sort of give an overview of it here. A couple of things that I want you to notice about this. It summarizes the heart of the message we're to communicate. The first thing I want you to see in this text is who took the initiative to reach out in love? And the answer is in verse 18. All this is from God. I want to show you that because this is the thing that sets our Christian faith apart from other religions. Our, our Christian faith is not about us striving somehow to find God. It's, it's God reaching out to find us. It's not about us learning enough or going through all these religious techniques that will become somehow spiritual enough that will float up into heaven. No, 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 it isn't for us learning to live well enough that we'll earn uh, our way into the Father. It is God loving us so much that he took the lead. God has found a way to make us right with him. Thank you, Lord. What did he do? Second thing I want you to see, what he did. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. 
not counting people's sins against us. Don't, don't you want to underline that last phrase? Which in that last phrase, not, he's found a way not to count our sins against us. We find the root problem of every human being. There are many problems we human beings have. Some people say it's a lack of education, not enough good street lighting, a better political party, better philosophy. All those things may be true, but the root problem is that there is sin in our lives that keep us from a holy God, and that needs to be dealt with, and God has found a way to do it. He did it in Christ. If you ever look at verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, theologians through the great centuries have called this the great exchange as a result of God's grace-filled, mercy-driven, love-filled work. Jesus on one side, the sinless one, bears the punishment necessary for our sins. And on the other side, the exchange is we get to be right before God. Good deal, don't you think? <laughs> It's what God offers to all, which brings me to the last thing about this text I want to show you, what God tells us to do about that. And he tells us three times in case we miss it. Verse 18, God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And that's the, how to be right with God. He's given us the ministry. Verse 19, if we missed it, God committed to us the message of reconciliation. And in case we've read that and missed it still, in verse 20, we are Christ's ambassadors. It's as though God were making his appeal through us. Now, I know myself. I look in the mirror and I see my frailty and my flaws. And I think, God, you should have a better plan than this. Than to think that through people like us here, this, this is going to faithfully get out there so that the world will learn about what you have done for us. There must be a plan B, right? And God essentially says, no, this is my plan. You are going to have your life changed and you're going to become my witnesses. And in this, there are a couple of things that are so important. That it's both a message and a ministry. A message. Because sometimes we think if... If I just live my life, people will see a difference and maybe they'll think there, there must be something. But no, a message. They need to know what God has done and they need to know the person of Jesus. So we have to find ways to put into words to communicate how people can know them. We need to find a way to tell people about Jesus. But it's also a ministry, which means service. It means we care about the people. We see the effects of sin in the world. We see the suffering that people have, the damage that has happened in people's inner beings and in their families and so forth. We care about people when they hurt, and we need to find ways to actually show practically the love of Jesus. So what I'm saying is God's call upon us when we've experienced the love of Jesus has to do both with our words as well as with our actions. The message about what God has done in Christ, we've got to tell people about that or they won't know what to do. They won't know who it is they have to believe in. But our ministry has to be love-driven or it won't have any authenticity. It's supposed to be the love of Christ that we have experienced, that we're so filled with awe because of it. It flows through us. It compels us to be willing to persuade people. You see the point of this? Now we're going to be going to the communion table. 
And there are a few senior pastor's thoughts and suggestions that I want to give before we go. Here are my thoughts. It seems to me that once we have really experienced the love of Jesus, that it should become more and more natural for us to simply talk to people about what Jesus means to us. I mean, by that I'm saying, I don't think every follower of Jesus is called to do what Paul did and go from city to city and be stoned and beaten and imprisoned. There might be some of us that have been, but all of us are called upon to speak of Jesus and, and to minister to people. I think each one of us, we, we, uh, we know what he knew, right? Point one. And, and followers of Jesus, we've experienced the love of Jesus, have you? And, and we know what this Jesus who loves us has told us to do. And where we have, we should hear God say to us, you are my ambassador. Go and tell others. How do we do that? I have these four suggestions, just quickly. One, just from me to you, I'm, I'm not going to give you Bible verses about this too much. This is just some of my thinking about how we might become more effective at communicating about Jesus. Number one, I want us all to find the courage to identify ourselves with Jesus. It, it doesn't have to be in a formal way. It doesn't have to be preaching a sermon. I'm just thinking you and I should all learn just in the normal conversations there are just countless ways you, you simply tell about the one who is at the very center of your life, the one who shapes every way, everything you think about, almost anything. To, to, do, to do so in a way that is different when you use the name of Jesus, the, not in the way most people do as a swear word, but let them know that you genuinely know him and, and love him. Now, I've got to warn you about this. When you actually identify yourself with Jesus, you have this commitment to live in such a way that that his name is not demeaned. And that just shapes almost every moment of your life, right? How you drive your car. I'm meddling here with myself. It, it, it meddles. I play tennis, and sometimes in the heat of the competition, uh, and the game's really close, that ball is close, out. And I sit there and I think, well, oh, I was really in. And he knows I'm a Christian. Oh, it was really in. You know, these little, little things, little things and big things. So that uh, if you follow Jesus, it should make you a more conscientious employee and a, and a more love-filled, caring boss and a better parent and a better sibling. It, the, identifying with Jesus is something that helps motivate and shape every moment of our lives. So that's the first thing I want to say. Second suggestion is that I want us all to learn to develop genuine, caring relationships with people who don't go to church. Uh, finding ways to enter into people's lives and to get to know them is a little bit harder for me as a preacher. I, I spend my time with you guys almost all the time. So, and that, I like that. that. That's not a complaint. I just, I just want you to know. But I, even for me, I think I need to be careful about this. So there are so many ways that we can get to know people a little bit more deeply than we otherwise would. Maybe by going to the same checkout person at the, at the store Maybe by trying to go to the same server if you go to a restaurant. Maybe going over and talking with your neighbors. As you try to develop those relationships, remember this phrase, be sure not to look at them from a worldly point of view. 
don't write them off simply because they seem to be on the fringes of the political viewpoints that are here. Pray that you will have your Father's eyes for the people see them as a potential new creation in Christ. And then third, be alert, be alert for opportunities to bring your faith to bear in the discussions. Um, It's not as hard as you think if you're really alert to this because your faith in Jesus affects everything. Now, it may be because I'm a pastor, which is both a plus and a negative in this. Sometimes when people find out I'm the pastor of this big church here on uh, uh, the 210, I just feel the walls go up. <laughs> I guess. But on the other side, it kind of opens up doors. And I've found that so many times when I've been developing a relationship with a person, trouble comes because it comes to us all. And so often, almost always, they'll come to me and just talk with me about it. And I think, how do I talk about this so that I'm not preaching them a sermon? This is the hard, hard part. And I've learned to try to start something like this. I really care about that. And there's some things I, I think about that. But you know what? I'm a Christian. I, I follow Jesus. I can't talk to you about that without bringing my faith to bear. Will you open up so that I can talk about that? And I, I find that people almost always do. They almost always do. And another interesting thing I've found here in Southern California, this is the most spiritual place I have been in my entire life. Uh, It's a downside because people say, well, you pray to your God, that's great. You know, just spiritual things are okay. But but the good side of it is this, that when I've asked people, can I pray for you? I've never, never had anybody tell me no when they're in the midst of that difficulty. So I will tell you, um, look for those opportunities, and I want to take away your fear too. Don't be afraid that when you're talking with people, they'll ask you questions that you can't answer. Or if they're even kind of anti-Christian, they're going to try to prove that everything that, that you believe is wrong. I just will tell you this. If there are things that they ask that you don't know the answer to in a real relationship, what do you say? I don't know the answer to that, but I'll tell you this is real to me. So let's, let's get together again next week. Maybe I'll have more thoughts about this than, than I have now. Just continue, continue on. And then the thing I want us to begin today is this. I want you to begin praying right now for people you know who need Jesus, who need to experience the love of Jesus. Can you think of someone right now that you really love or the barista at the coffee shop? (laughs) Just think about that. We're going to be going to the communion tables together. We're going to be remembering that Jesus loves us so much that he died for us. And as I said earlier, right now, I want you to think this. Jesus, you died not only for me, but for all. But not all people know you, Lord. There are people I know, Lord Jesus, who are not going to be able to take communion and who won't be ready to stand before the judgment seat before you. Here's the way I want you to think about it. Our communion table is open for all who know and trust the Lord Jesus as Savior. It's his table. Can you think of somebody that you would really like to be taking communion with, but they can't take communion because they don't know Jesus? Would you think of their name and, and... and begin writing it down. In fact, that's what I want you to do. Will you take out a sheet of paper if you can find one? Um, You can even use those sermon notes in the front. 
Don't rip out a page in the Bible or the, or the hymnal. Don't, don't do that. Take out, take out one of those. Or if you don't have a sheet of paper around you, look around at somebody who has a purse or something and say, do you have a sheet of paper? I see it already happening. <laughs> Uh, take a sheet of paper. And what I want you to do on that sheet of paper is that name that you had, you might have one or two, will you put it at the top of that sheet, the top, and then write that name again at the bottom of the sheet. So if you have a little sheet of paper, you have to write really small, write the name at the top, and then at the bottom. When you've gotten that name written, will you tear the sheet in half? Take one half of that sheet, put it in your pocket or in your sport coat, or into your purse, or into your Bible, or something that you can put that in. And then with the other one, I want you to bring it with you to communion. I want you to bring it with you to communion. You'll see at our communion tables, and I'll ask our stewards to come to the tables now. We'll have baskets that are there. Up until Easter, what we're gonna do, we're gonna take these names of people we're praying for here at Lake that need to know Jesus. We're gonna put them in this container, and we're gonna be praying for them all the way through. We did this several years ago. And a number of those names that were in that container are here in church now. They've come to know Jesus. And we're going to pray the same thing happens, right? So we're going to go to the communion table now. Um, here at Lake Ave, different from some churches, it's the Lord's table. If you know Jesus, be sure to come. We ask you to come out from where you're seated and take the cup and to take the bread and take it back to your seat. We'll receive it together. If you cannot make it out for health reasons or whatever, our stewards will come and bring it out to you. And all the way to my right to your left, there is the table for those who have uh, gluten allergies as well. So write down those names, get ready to come, and when you're ready as the music is playing, come. Bring that name, the person you're praying for, but also bring your life. Make a renewed commitment to the one whose love compels you even to persuade others to his glory. Come as you're ready.